You feel it, you know it. D Raw Productions. What's up, people? It's your boy, D-Rock, coming to you with another Houston Sports Connoisseurs podcast. Today, I got my co-host with me, Charles. Let him know what's up. What's going down, people? Ain't no pretending, man. It's the real deal like that boy Holyfield. Hey, man, don't forget to uh, help your boy out. Get your fresh baked goodies from D3 Sweet Treats. I got what you like, cookies, brownies, pies, baked by me. The link is in the description. All the new snacks for them hit the street. Today, we're going to talk about the Houston Texans game. Uh, previous game against the Denver Broncos. Then we're going to lead fourth with the uh, upcoming game against the Jets and a whole bunch of more NFL topics, college, and more. So looking back at this uh, this football game that the Houston Texans had against the Broncos, the Texans did prevail 22-17. to 17, But the score was, you know, it, it seemed like the game was a whole lot closer than what the score would appear. Uh, it would, it really would appear like the Texans really won by a field goal off a clutch kick when you actually look at the, the game and how everything kind of ran down. Uh, but also, at the same time, there was times in this game where the Texans really had the opportunity to separate themselves uh, from the Denver Broncos by a big margin. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't say it better myself, but um, the score, it, you know, Five-point victory. Uh, you said it had the, the feel of a, a game that was won by three points. Um, five and three, I mean, it ain't that big of a difference on that. But uh, <laughs> to me, the point that you made about the Texans had several opportunities to kind of pull away from this game and make it more of a, a bigger win is what I walked away from the game feeling disappointed about. And, yes, you know, even though we won the game, I still walked away with a disappointing vibe, you know, because I want to see the Texans open up and, and, and blow out people, and that just didn't happen in this game. Yeah, um, in this game, we had got uh, Ward back, and then, you know, all the DBs was locked in, especially your boy Stangley, you know. But – the way they played and having Ward back and Denzel Perriman back and, you know, some of the other players on the team, I really expected us to really just separate ourselves in this game. And as you can see in the beginning of the game, Sean Payton, he went right after our DBs right away after Steven Nelson and Stingley. But from a success side on our defense, we showed that that is still our strength. And uh, even though Sean Payton, as, as a good coach, he tried to coach uh, – uh, Russell Wilson into um, playing against our strength, but yet he failed, and he see that the strength really is true. Our our DBs are really solid in cover. Is age time for Well, you know that's that's kind of like what we've been talking about uh, for the last couple of episodes leading up into this one. Uh, we kind of stated in the last episode that with Ward back and with Perryman back. Um, the defense would have, you know, uh, a better look, a better outing. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what they did. Um, you know, people laughed when I said, you know, let's get uh, Houston Carson out of here on a skateboard and that, this, that, and the <laughs> other. But at the end of the day, 
what actually sealed, or should I say, who actually sealed that victory for us? Because I, I, I literally remember saying, with Jimmy Ward back, it's, it's, it's going to free up a lot of other things. And his instincts as a player, we had missed for the last couple of games. And he was the man that actually went up and, and snagged an interception that basically sealed the game. That he did. Uh, but you know what? Hats off to Jimmy Ward, but I don't want to really forget about what Anderson did. You know, my boy Anderson, man, he, he played his ass off in that game. Woo! Uh, but not only did he play great, the opposite opposite side of the D-line actually helped him out. I seen plays from John Gennard. I seen plays from Derek Barnett, a newcomer. And even Jerry Hughes got a little dirty as well. But nobody really outplayed Anderson in my book. Uh, I, you know, when you're talking about the team as a whole on the defensive side of the ball like that, it's hard for me to give out individual awards when it's a team sport because a lot of things that happen to certain individuals on the field is a direct byproduct of what the other teammates are doing to put that person in that position by doing their job. That's what all great defensive-minded uh, coordinators tell the defenses. Hey, man, if you just do your job, it's going to make everybody else's job easier and better. And I think that's what Will Anderson is benefiting from. Solid play from everybody ready to dig in and go out and get the job done. Yeah, I agree. And uh, like I had mentioned last time, uh, I had said that if the, the pass rush get there on Wilson, we definitely have a chance in this game. And the D-line, the pass rush, the run stop even as well. Um, they, they played good all the way around. And that's what really gave us a shot at winning this game. And as you can see, the pass rush getting home to Wilson made uh, Jimmy Ward end up getting an interception with Wilson putting the ball in a bad spot. So kudos to the D-line in that one. Okay, so we, we I mean, you mentioned it. Let's go in detail about, uh, see, it's, it's a lot of intangibles what I've been saying all season about Will Anderson, what he brings to the table. He, mm -hmm. he you know, he's this, this heralded rookie from the, from the, 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 the glorious Alabama University, oh, you know what I'm saying? He's one of those players. So anything he does has to be world profound in order for him to get credit because, <laughs> you know, he's just supposed to have that. But that's just not how it works. You got to put in the work. But speaking of putting in the work, if you look at what he actually did in this game, like, bro, I think I looked up. He was so all over the field in this game. I looked up one time and he actually blocked the punt. Yeah, and I didn't even know he was out on the field doing pop, uh, punt blocks or, mm -hmm. you know, field goal blocks and all of that. Is, is he out there for all that? He's special teams yeah, too. That, and that's actually not his first time doing that this season. He, he's done that, I know, at least another time, maybe two other times, you know, prior to this game. So he's always been putting his foot in the dirt and, uh, and getting dirty and getting out there and getting it every play. I think a lot of people always look at how many sacks he got you know, versus how many pressures he has. And in this game, he did have two sacks. He had two tackles for a loss as well. Uh, all that total to five total uh, tackles and with the four QB hits. So, like we said, you know, that's pressure on the quarterback. And we're not even talking about everybody else that kind of chipped in uh, on the other side of the line and things like that to help out Will Anderson along the way. But with all that being said, those are the reasons that we won this game against the Denver Broncos.
Yeah, I, I agree. It was, it was a total team effort on the defensive side of the ball. But to go to the other side of the ball, that offense is still not showing me that killer instinct yet. Right. Like, we can't stop tripping over ourselves on the offensive side of the ball. And at this point in the season, I, I thought we would be at a point to whereby some of those issues would have started to kind of fix themselves, but still we're not there. And then, you you know, I, I hate to keep mentioning this part, but um, I know and I see where the absence of Tank Dale is going to be a huge loss for the team. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say in that game, we, we definitely missed uh, Schultz. But, you know, Brevin Jordan, he, he did show up a little bit, three receptions, 64 yards, but he did have that one play, bro, where we was talking about, like, man, that could have been six points man, right that there. that could have been six points. And, that's just right there, just him not having enough agility along the sideline because there was no one there to push him. He just took himself out the game yeah. on that play, on that, uh, that big reception. So that was a, a big letdown. But, man, hats off to Nico Collins for stepping up when Tank Dell was out nine receptions for 191 yards. That's almost a 200-yard receiving game and plus a touchdown. Uh, you look at that, man, he, he was nine for 12, nine receptions out of 12 targets. Yeah. My boy was catching almost every pass. Now, he did drop that one touchdown pass, but we know Nico will improve as we have seen from the beginning of the season until now, and uh, I don't think there will be an issue later down the line. Yeah, uh, again, shouts out to Nico. Shouts out to uh, Brevin Jordan for coming in, filling in, uh, giving us some quality minutes in the, in the absence of Schultz. Uh, I, I, too, agree that when he caught that one pass, talking about Brevin Jordan, mm-hmm. uh, when he uh, caught it and kind of skirted down the sidelines and actually stepped out of bounds, to me, he played like a guy that shocked himself that he was that wide open on the play. And by the time he realized that, oh, shoot, I can actually score right here, the left foot hit the, uh, the uh, sideline. But, you know. We want to analyze just not only the receiver, but I also want to analyze the passer. And if we really go back and look at that game, that was was just one play which all QBs in the NFL uh, 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 just, you know, they're licking their lips for it, to have excellent blocking up front. Mm -hmm. The play was longer than two or three seconds. He didn't have to just force the throw, but by the time he identified the, the, the open target, C.J. Stroud, people, missed a wide-open John Mechie coming across the middle, which could have possibly been just a, a scoring a scoring play. Yeah. And, and the minute he threw it, he kind of, like, grabbed his helmet. And, 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 you know, I love that about him. He took ownership for what he did, but he overthrew him by a mile. But uh, John Mechie, uh, hats off to him for running a, a great route, was wide open, and C.J. just overthrew him. Yeah, um, I think that's something that they'll improve, you know, especially going into the next couple of weeks. I give Manchin and Stroud at least two weeks to get the chemistry right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, usually he's he's been hitting um, our boy Tank Dell on those deep routes, and now he has to hit, hit Mechie and adjust to what his speed is versus Dell. But I think him and Mechie will definitely gel well together. I really hope so because we all been waiting on this Mechie coming out party for him to really show what he got. You know, we've seen this player at Alabama who was very special, and we're hopefully that it, hoping that it all translates into the NFL for the Houston Texans as well. Um, with that, I also want to talk about the rushing. 
you know, we, we talked about this running attack before this game even happened. And um, I was like, man, yeah, about, you know, 20, 25 carries. And look up, the team rushed for 30 carries. And um, we got 89 yards rushing on three uh, yards per attempt. But, but you know, we look at Devin Singletary. He had eight carries for 36 yards, four and a half per attempt. And uh, we look at that, it looked like Devin Singletary should have been the, the man getting the more carries in this game instead of Damian Pierce. As I said before, I just feel like Singletary is better in this system because Pierce came out there with the 15 carries and 41 yards, 2.7 per carry. Uh, but he did get that touchdown. Yeah, I mean, we're not going to say a touchdown as a but. A touchdown is a big thing in this league. So, yeah, he he, he scored on a, uh, on a handoff. But the thing I just kind of want to point out is, you know, like you said, you alluded to just a second ago, we, we had kind of uh, touched on this a little bit in a previous episode. Who is our number one RB? Like, is it, is it, is it, is it time to, to shift this from Pierce to Singletary? Mm-hmm. And if so, why? Is it the fact that Pierce is just not being patient as a runner? Is he not a good fit in the in, in the scheme? Like, what what is it? You know, I, I just think that Pierce is not good in this scheme. Uh, looking at that game, Pierce did have one big run. Uh, I think he ran for like twenty some yards, and then they followed up with another carry. And once again, it, it just kind of showed what I have been saying about Pierce all year long. Is he looks for contact? He don't really look for the open hole. He's not patient. He doesn't slow down and really find that seam where he can just really take off and burst uh, right away. But also, you know, you look at the statistics for uh, Pierce and Devin Singletary on the year. Singletary is actually the rushing leader with 525 yards rushing on the season. Now, we know that uh, Pierce has played in nine, I mean, three less games, but even though they still have the same amount of carries and uh, Singletary is more efficient. So, Looking at that, you know, it's it's a good question. Like, who is really the, the RB1 right here? And I'm just going to ride with Singletary because I just feel like he's more patient in the backfield. What do you think? Well, I definitely think that the system and the scheme that the Houston Texans are running coming out of that West Coast-style offense, it does cause for a back to be a little bit patient, uh, identify his blockers and what they're doing, and then make a burst through the hole. It's like a one-cut uh type of running scheme whereas from what I've seen thus far out of Perryman he's just get the ball and shoot put your head down and shoot and I don't think he's looking up to see where he's shooting at he just knows that if if the ball if the player is designed to go through the A gap he's just going through the A gap even if it's plugged up and that's never a good thing on the NFL level but given his his production last season and I I know you know we shouldn't be going that far back on this but given his production last season it it was effective for him so he's got to find some kind of balance between what he did last year and the things we're running this year and try to make it gel together yeah uh he's definitely going to have to figure it out especially if he want to continue to be a starting NFL running back uh especially for this team because Right now, I'll be honest, it's looking like we're going to need another running back to come in into this group, and that can really just do both. You know, do some of what Singletary is doing, but also do some of what Pierce is doing because us having a dual back will really be scary uh, for this team moving forward. But you know, I, I, I just want to point this out too. 
because what I said just a minute ago could be misconstrued as if all the responsibility of getting that fix falls on uh, DP. It's not just him. It, it, it's an offensive coordinator's job to know your skill set of your players. And from what I understand, Bobby Slowick has the ability, like he's, he's been empowered to take that offense and, and build and construct plays mm-hmm. to, 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 to from scratch. So I think he needs to understand what we're saying about Damian Pierce and, and, and change up schemes and run plays that are better suited for him. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have to run plays out of the West Coast offense playbook for Damian Pierce. Because, like, you know, I was talking to someone else, and, and, and they made a valid point. They said, it, you know, being fair to Damian Pierce, it just seems like other defenses, opposing defenses, they know when he's out on the field, this means the Texans are going to hand the ball off to him. Because he only has, like, one reception since – week one or two, uh, where he, he was throwing a pass. So that means you're finna hand the ball to him and, and the defenses are just stacking the box up on him. Because if you actually look at the games, there are so many times when he gets the handoff, he's hit two, three uh, yards back in the backfield. Mm-hmm. Because they already know when he's out there, he mm-hmm. they're going to run the ball with him. Yeah. So that's not fair I think, like like I was saying, I think that also just kind of feeds into maybe, maybe they need to work with him on being a dual threat back and Using him out of the backfield, so teams can't, you know, predict what they're going to do with him so much. But, but also, but he already has that skill set because if you look at what he did last year, he was catching the ball out of the backfield. That's true. He was a dual threat uh, uh, running back. And so, if the Texans just aren't playing to his strengths, is that his fault or is that play calling? That's play calling. Um, but another thing I, I do want to uh, mention is that. We, we talk about the, the run game, but a lot of this run game also relies on a, a broken offensive line where we, we keep missing players and, you know, one day this guy's in, next day this guy's in. And I, I'll be honest, like, right now I think we got, like, a third-string center in the game in Dieter, you know. And looking at Dieter, from my perspective, Dieter is not really good at run blocking or pass blocking. He's just a guy that's there. Sometimes he make a good play. A lot of times he make a bad play. And when we really need him up front to be pushing forward, that's when the, the run hole, you know, clogs up and our running backs get stopped right there short because Dieter is not making the push <coughs> right from the middle of the line. So that's a big issue as well. Yeah. And, and if you want to talk about the offensive line, uh, I'm curious to know. I know how I feel about it. I, I feel like uh, – in the two games that he's played now, Juice Scruggs has come in and done a phenomenal job. I mean, absolutely phenomenal job. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that he's all pro or anything like that, but I'm just saying to come in and allow that that uh, spot to 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 protect CJ Stroud the way that he has. Mm-hmm. I mean, my hats off to him. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, looking at Juice Scruggs as he came out of college from Penn State. He was already a dog at that position. Well, actually, he was a center, and now they moved him to guard, you know, to help out because Titus Howard is out. But every time I seen him from his highlights, he was always been a dog. And now that he's fully healthy, it's really nice to see him fill in and not have an issue right away. You know, he he's just plugging and going. So um, hopefully, the offensive line get a little bit more consistent. But um, moving forward, you know. I, I just I always say that good running always promotes great passing. Um, 
And 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 I think every coach would would agree with that. I don't know what, what you think. I know you say we should pass the ball a bit more, but yeah, you already know how I feel on that that particular subject. I think it's uh, you know, it could go either way. <clears throat> if your team's strength is you're 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 better at passing, then that's what you come out and do. Mm-hmm. You don't try to force something that you don't have in order to have to fall back and revert to what you're already good at. The Texans need to flip their mentality. They need to come out passing because the average team that faces them is already going to think, okay, this team's going to try to run the ball. So the play action will be actually open uh, early in the game where you play action and throw the ball deep, put your points up. Mm -hmm. Then, as the other defense is expecting the pass, that's when you sneak in some runs and you get these these, – Big pops just like you got from DP last week, a 22 yarder. Mm-hmm. But that's because we had started passing the ball and then we snuck in a handoff. And he, and what did he do? He popped it open for 22 yards. Right. So if it was running game is my strength, then you start off running and then you you, you kind of play action and, and, and sneak a pass in. But for the Texans, they need to do vice versa. Okay. I agree. I feel you. I understand. <laughs> um, so moving on to the, the Jets game. Um, I I want to acknowledge that Tank Dell is possibly most likely out for the season, and uh, we're taking on a Jets team that is not favored at home, and the Texans got a three and a half a uh, chance to beat them. But with Dell being out and us not having an opportunity to really just take the, the top off of defense now, uh, what receiver do you really expect to stand out? I mean, out of Mechie, Brown, Woods. Hutchinson, who do you really expect to really just stick out like a sore thumb? Uh, I don't know if any of them are going to stick out like a sore thumb, but I know all of them, like I said before, need to step up by by the role of a committee mm-hmm. to kind of fill some of the the, the void that, that Tank Dell has uh, left us with. But I, I really do want to say this. I don't respect the New York Jets to whereby we have to be worried or intimidated or concerned in the least bit with this game. Mm -hmm. As long as we go out and do what we do best, we should be fine. I I agree. Um, The one thing that I would say that we have going against us in this game is that the elements is actually going to play a factor in this game. It's going to be raining. It's going to be kind of cold. A lot of times when you have elements, it means that you got to put the – the ball in the running back's hands a little bit more, and we're going to have to depend on that, especially going up against a, a Jets defense that falls in the middle of the pack. But I also believe that this Jets defense is actually a top 10 defense. It's just the fact that they have a bad quarterback at, you know, at the time, and Zach Wilson, that's putting their defense in bad positions. And hopefully that stays the same against the Texans, uh, because if that's, if that's the truth, then the Texans definitely got a shot to win this game. Well, irregardless to who they have playing at quarterback, and and, and just to take a sidetrack to talk about their quarterback position, let's let you know my heart really goes out to a guy like Zach Wilson because he was drafted number two pick overall. Then in the offseason, they went and acquired Aaron Rodgers, who everybody knows what happened to him, first game of the season, torn Achilles, he's out. So back come back in comes Zach Wilson. He plays a couple of games, and then all of a sudden they bring some unknown. Well, he wasn't. I ain't gonna say he was unknown, but he was a bum. They brought him <laughs> into the to the fold, and uh, 
he played a couple of games and they started him over Zach Wilson and now he's out. He's no longer even a Jet just because he was good friends with Aaron Rodgers. Mm-hmm. And now back comes Zach Wilson. So if, if, if I'm Zach Wilson, I'm coming into this game a little bitter. I'm not coming in like I got something to prove. You know, it's a difference. So I'm hoping we get a bitter Zach Wilson out there that we're facing. And like you said, with the elements, they're going to have to try to run the ball just like we're going to have to try to run the ball Mm -hmm. to possibly keep down turnovers. So this game right here is one of those games where I could easily see the Texans being upset because if memory serves me correctly, this will be a first for C.J. Stroud as an NFL quarterback playing in these kind of elements away from home on the road. And I think this will be a great <clears throat> a great time for him to shine. Now I know your original question was in reference to the wide receivers, but if your if your if your if your passer can't get the ball to the wide receivers, then you got a problem right there. So can can CJ Stroud step up when the Texans are down? Now I don't know how down they'll be because if you look back at the at the Jets' last two games, neither game did they score ten points. Right. Um, I also say this: I'm not too <clears> worried <throat> about C.J. Stroud playing in the elements. He was up there in Ohio State, and up there, I mean, you dealing with rain, sleet, and snow. So I, I think C.J. will play fine in the elements. Good point. Uh, also, I don't know if you heard, but they say Aaron Rodgers was limited practicing to you know today. So. He throwing the ball around. He moving around. It might just be some kind of coincidence that Aaron Rodgers might pop up and pop out on us. But even if he did. <laughs> Let me stop you right there. Because I'm going to be honest with you. This morning, when I woke up, I grabbed the football. I walked around with it. I even threw it. Does that mean I'm going to play this weekend? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> so, I'm, I mean... The narrative about Aaron Rodgers, I'm, I'm, me personally, I'm, I'm tired of it because at first they were saying, oh, he's out for the season. Then they said, oh, it's a possibility he'll return this season. And, and as each week goes, the, the rumor just keeps circulating. So people, trust your boy on this one. Aaron <laughs> Rodgers is done for the season. He's never going to play a down in a regular season game for the Jets, including this upcoming game against the Texans. Yeah. Uh, also, we got Brees Hall that, you know, it's possible that he might be out with an ankle injury. Tyler Conklin, their number one tight end, he got a hamstring injury as well. So, looking at those two key players, I definitely see the Texans getting a victory. Like you said, you never really know, though. Uh, Zach Wilson might be licking his chops a little bit. He might be a little angry, and he might be trying to, you know, upset us. But I still think this Texan team is good enough, sound enough to get the victory. Um, I'm going to tell you my key factors to the game for us to get the win. And I will say the first factor is just to get the run game going. You know, especially in the elements. Rather that's passing first, then running, like you said, or running first and then passing. I think that's going to be one of the main, the main factors. The second factor is slow down the Jets run game. Because we all know that Zach Wilson ain't really that capable of, of being that dangerous. So they're going to be handing the ball out to Brees Hall or whoever else comes behind him a hell of a lot against the Texans, you know. And then the the last key of the game, the major key, is to force the ball into Zach Wilson's hands and force him to beat you. Well, that, you know, you just 
segued right into what I was about to say in rebuttal to what you just said. Mm -hmm. In order for us to beat the New York Jets, that game plan that you just uh, laid out, to me, it plays right into the hands of the Jets. If we come out trying to run the ball and we already know <laughs> that our offense has struggled with running the ball, I can. it just equates to, to one thing to me, three and outs, three and outs, three and outs. And the more time you give a team like that to hang around, uh, the better their opportunity is to kind of snatch one at the end like we've lost some games by a field goal or less. My strategy for this game would be to come out and jump all over the New York Jets. Open up your passing attack, go down there and put up points, and that would force the ball right into Zach Wilson's hands because now they're not going to try to run the ball so much. They're going to try to have him make plays to stay competitive, which is going to give my boy, that's right, you heard it here, <laughs> Eric Stingley an opportunity to get another pick, uh, Possibly Steven Nelson, possibly Jimmy Ward, possibly Jalen Petrie, because the ball is going to be up in the air and it's just going to be floating because that's all he throws is floating ducks everywhere. But that only happens if we get them down early and force them to play from behind for the majority of the game. You know, since you mentioned Stingley, I was just thinking, I was like, yeah, we, finally, I know. we finally get that Sauce Gardner versus Stingley kind of matchup, see who's going to play better on each side of the ball, man. Okay. So, now, you know, I've been waiting patiently for this moment. People, y'all got to forgive me. I know y'all can't see me right now, but I'm, like, literally beaming from ear to ear. you going to do today, Napoleon? Whatever I feel like I want to do. Gosh! Have you looked at the season totals for Sauce Gardner this year versus the season totals for Derek Stanley this year? I haven't. As far as production. I haven't. What, what they got? What they got? So... I'll give you this. In, in, in passes defended, I think they're tied at eight apiece. Uh -huh. But in interceptions, Derek Stingley is, is currently tied for number four in the NFL with four picks. Sauce Gardner, I think I hear crickets right now. I, I'm, I'm gonna take, <laughs> people, I'm sorry, I got to take my time and say this because, this, you know, this is just pointing out something that I predicted well before the season. This was really actually predicted by me last year during the draft. But Sauce Gardner has laid a goose egg in the interception department. Why mm -hmm. is that? Well, first off, you also got to look at that Sauce Gardner was shut down last year. Uh, he was a pro bowler. Um, and that right there is a reason for a quarterback not to try him. But at the same time, a lot of people didn't know what to expect from Stingley, so there's more wait, chances. Wait, 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 wait. Screw timeout, coach. Timeout. Twenty second timeout on the on the on the play. You mean to tell me Sauce Gardner, who was picked at what pick in the draft? Well, he was uh, number two. Sauce Gardner. He was number two, or was he one? One or two? The Texans had the opportunity to pick Sauce Gardner, and they drafted who? Oh, that's right. He was number four. My bad. They drafted Darius Stingley. So, if a cornerback was drafted before this guy, historically, that means that the league felt like this player was better, or at least the team that picked him was better than the other one that came, that got picked later in the draft. Mm -hmm. So, to rebuttal or, or refute what the statement you just last made about 
how great Sauce Gardner was last year and defenses aren't even challenging him and this, that, and the other. They knew that coming into the season about Stingley, too. Now, mind you, these numbers that I just laid out for you, Sauce Gardner played pretty much the entire season last year and all of the games this year. Derek Stingley has better numbers in half the games. Well, looking at Sauce numbers from last year, he only had two interceptions, but he had 20 passes defense. This year, what he was, has, what was What were Stingley's numbers from last year? I got to roll back to Stingley. We'll roll back. Roll that beautiful bean footage. I thought you would have Stingley. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> you know know I know it. I don't have to pull it up. I know it. All right. All what right. I'm saying is I want to break you up from just having this diarrhea at the lips about Stingley without facts. Uh, first off, I ain't never had no diarrhea at <laughs> the lips I about mean, Stingley. You ain't saying like I just talked about You got my boy in the toilet bowl every time you talk. Oh. He trash. I gave him his, his props the last couple games. What are you talking about? Bro, we had a whole segment on the whole Denver versus Houston game, and not once. People, maybe I missed it. Maybe I, you know, I was drinking right. coffee. Did he mention that in that game, Derek Stingley had not one but two interceptions? I don't think he, I didn't, I don't I think didn't, he mentioned that. I didn't say that, but I said he played his, he played his ass. So I said, no, that's not it. <laughs> normally, whenever a player gets Two picks in a one game. That's that's worth a little bit more dollars. All right. So in, in your point of view, anyways, well, you know, who who do you think was the starter defense? Do you think it was Stingley in this Denver game? Well, clearly, if we go by the expert analysis on this podcast, the starter defense was Will Anderson. But I just I just think at, at, at minimum there there should be co-stars for last week. Like I actually went it, in it and looked. Star. I actually went in to look to see who the league named the AFC Defensive Player of the Week. And what was surprising to me was neither one of them was picked. So that 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 kind of had me a little sad. But I'm I'm back. I'm back. That's not a surprise to me because the league hates Houston in, in everything uh, media wise. It's always been that way. But I will say this. With the addition of these rookies that the Houston Texans have had, you know, uh, I'm not a hater, so I do kind of look at what other programs or, you know, uh, podcasts are saying. The Houston Texans are getting a lot more dialogue. They are, they are especially CJ Stroud by far. Uh, he's getting <clears> the most dialogue. But um, to go back to Darius Stingley, in his first year, he played in with nine games. He had one interception, so that's half of what, what uh, Sauce had. And Sauce played the full season. You're right about that. Stingley had five passes defense, but Sauce defended 20 in his first season. This year, uh, they're both tied up at eight passes defense. And, yeah, you're correct. Stingley does have more interceptions. He has four, and Sauce has none. But, like I said, some of that can stem from quarterbacks already having an idea of what Sauce Gardner can do and knowing that he's shut down, so you're not going to try him as much as you would Stingley, who didn't play a full season last year, so it's a smaller sample size. Sample this, okay? Get your pup, your, your P. Diddy on, get your Dr. Dre on, whoever it is that you get all your samples from. I need you to understand this. Trying Derek Stingley is a big mistake. Ask Sean Payton. I'm done. Okay, so anyways, what is your prediction on the uh, Texans and Jets game? 
Well, you know, in, in most of our games, you know, I'm partial. And, you know, I, I, I'm definitely looking for the Texans to pull one out. The one thing, the, the, the waters that I will not navigate in is with this inconsistent offense, I don't dare say if it's going to be uh, a 21-point blowout or, or a 10-point game or, or a battle of field goals. At this point, I really don't care. I just want us to win, and I think we will. In, in spite of the elements. I agree. Uh, if I was to put a score on it, I would say 17-14 Texans. So, let me get this straight. Who's the last two opponents of the, the Jets? Atlanta, and who else was it? Atlanta, shit, let me see. Atlanta and the Dolphins. They lost to the Dolphins 34-13, and they lost to the Falcons 13-8. Right. So who was the who was the one before the Dolphins? The Bills. Uh, two six. Lost. Six. Okay, that's the game I was thinking about. Cause I was like the last two games they didn't score ten points, but I, I forgot about that uh, Dolphins game in the middle. I don't, I'm, I'm sorry, people, for putting out the misinformation, but I don't follow the Jets like that. But in their last three games, you got six points, you got thirteen, and you got eight. <clears throat> and you're talking about the Dolphins. The Falcons and uh, the Bills. Mm-hmm. Where does their defense stack up next to the Texans? That you say they're going to put up more points on us than they put over all three of them. Well, I just say, man, the, the Bills, we know they got a solid defense. Dolphins actually do as well. But I don't know to say that we're more electric than the Dolphins for sure. But um, we're not talking about offense, we're talking about defense. I know we are way more electric on defense than the Dolphins are. I know we are way more electric on the defensive side of the ball than the Falcons are. The Falcons, yeah. Dolphins, I don't know, bro. I think we're pretty much tied up in some ways. Statistically, it might not be. I have to look at the statistics. But uh, I just think that it's going to be like a 17-14 game because of the elements. Mind you, we've had key injuries and suspensions on defense when the Dolphins and the Bills have been running full stream ahead, and they have not fallen victim to the injury bug or suspensions. Now we have an opportunity to put most of our starters back on the field against the Jets. And I'm going to tell you right now, people thought I was crazy when I said this last episode that Denzel Perryman would come back and be a, a, a huge impact player for the, for the Texans. But who was carrying our defense earlier this season that was a surprise to everybody? Cashman. Cashman. But if you go back and look at the numbers for Cashman for last week's game, what happened? Perryman stepped up. But I'm saying what happened to Cashman? He, he never went away. No, he was pretty much non-existent in that game. No, I've seen Cashman make a couple plays, bro. I don't want to go by your play-by-play <laughs> stats. Man. Let's look at the stats. Read me his stats for last week's game. People, I talk from from, from facts. I'm, I'm speaking from facts, too. I don't, I don't give you guys just these emotional statements. Cashman has six total tackles, bro. How many tackles for a loss? He had none. How many sacks? He had none. Okay. Is that the Cashman we had, had grown to know and love for the for, – from the 
first part of this season? No, but I think a lot of that also depends on the defensive scheme since he slid over and allowed Perriman to take that position that he usually had. But also, you look at Perriman, he didn't have no time for a loss either. But wait a minute. You, you, you say that as if Blake Cashman just voluntarily said, hey, Perriman, you take this spot. I'm going to be a nice guy. I didn't say that. I said it as, from a defensive point of view as a coach, Perriman was a starting linebacker, and they slid – they slid uh, Cashman over probably to Sam or whatever, or Will, whoever, whatever, however they identify themselves. And Perryman was back into the Mike position. Let me tell you this. What you talking about, Will? This is the Mike that you need to be speaking of, or speaking to, shall I say. If you are an impact player, you're going to be an impact player no matter what system you're in. Devin Singleton came from Buffalo Bills. He was an impact player in the running back position. He's come here to the Houston Texans. Different scheme. He's an impact player in the running game, okay? Is that safe to say? Will Anderson Jr. He's an impact player in that defense, right? It's not catered to his style. Look, he's, he's just an impact player. Derek Stingley, impact player. Jimmy Ward showed you the value of what an impact player at that position well, also can you, do for you that also defense. have to realize, as an inside backer, what your defensive tackles do in front of you really determines how well you can be stopping the run and get in the backfield. Because at the same time, as both teams are in the trenches, the defensive tackle is kind of playing like an offensive tackle on the other side and moving him out the way and filling his gap so the linebacker can go into his gap and get in the backfield to make the tackle for a loss. So it kind of played both ways. doesn't mean that they're not impact players, though. I've seen them make good plays. Please forgive me, people. I had to check and make sure that I was wearing the over because I can't understand why this man is throwing all this stench in my direction. Check this out. Blake Cashman. Was he the same player that he is right now, playing in the same system the first six, seven games of the season when he was making all of these different tackles, all of these different plays? Is he not the same guy? And he's the same guy, bro. Okay. Well, then, all I'm saying is for one game, trust me, people, I'm not bashing Cashman. I love Blake Cashman. I just want to see some more of the old Blake Cashman, meaning – from the beginning of this season, mm -hmm. this week coming up against the Jets. And that's what would help me to solidify the fact that I don't see them putting up 14 points on us. All right. All right. So moving on. Moving on. Closing out uh, the Texan talk. Let's get to picking them. You know, we, we got a, a gang of teams playing this week, as usual. And... But can I, can I just throw this one little thing in there before we go directly into that? It, it, it segues into the pickums. But as it pertains to our division, can mm -hmm. I just say one little thing, if you don't mind? Sure. Uh, I think everybody that's, you know, AFC South uh, Texans fans, one big thing did happen last week with Trevor Lawrence getting hurt. So that's why this game this week, coming up against the Jets is even more important because they lost. And it looks like he won't even play in their upcoming game this week. So the Texans have an opportunity to make ground. So I'm hoping that they use that as motivation to go in and really take care of business in New York. Uh, I agree with you, but, you know, I, I heard Trevor Lawrence was out there moving around just like Aaron Rodgers and us too. Yeah. So, uh, hey, we never really know what we're going to get, but – I agree. Hopefully he sits out and uh, the Browns take this dub, allow the Texans to catch up and tie that division for the lead. Um, but looking at this this pick'em, 
Cincinnati and Indianapolis play against each other, and that's going to be another big duel, and hopefully Cincinnati can prove that they're the better team in that one so we don't have to worry about the Colts. Well, they helped us out last week, that's for sure. So they, they, they won a game in overtime against uh, uh, the Jaguars. So hopefully they can continue their winning ways against Indianapolis. Yeah. So um, looking at a couple good games on this uh, week's schedule, we got Dallas and Philadelphia playing on a Sunday night. Um, last time Dallas came up short, and uh, this time they're at home. And I think Dak is really – Hoping to really find redemption and beat Philly. What do you think? I, I, I concur wholeheartedly. I think that that's exactly what's going to happen, especially given the fact of how Philadelphia lost last week in a blowout to San Francisco. You, you would think they would come in with a chip on their shoulder and, and, and say, hey, we've been the best in the league so far this year. We're going to continue to be the best and, and put up a very competitive game against the Cowboys. But Jalen Hurts on the road in Dallas, I mean, to me, I, I'm scared to pick this one. Yeah. I'm really am. So, I don't know. Uh, you say Dallas will win. I, I, I just I, I have to sit back and watch that one. It's going to be a yeah, good one. It's going to be a good one. Uh, another good one is going to be Kansas City and Buffalo. Those are two electric offenses going against each other. Uh, a lot of times we we really realize that uh, Mahomes really ain't got it like he usually do. So I'm going to take Buffalo in that one. And I'm going to do just the opposite. Uh, last week I rode against Kansas City. This week I'm going to ride with them. One, they're at home. And two, it's a must-win game for them. Okay. <clears throat> uh, Seattle and San Francisco go against uh, each other. Who you got now? Well, you know, it's like Dennis Green said, you know, they, they are who we think they are <laughs> at this point. You know, we might as well go on the crown because the rest of the league, everybody's talking like San Francisco is the best team in the league. Mm -hmm. Like that offense is just impeccable. But uh, I just don't think I'm going to ride against them this week. So I, I look for San Francisco to win. You know what? I'm going to ride with Seattle in this one only because it's a division rival. And this game is really important to Seattle's success as they uh, try to push for the playoffs in that one. Mm. Uh, Vegas and Minnesota is another good matchup. Um, Minnesota, you know, Josh Dobbs, he's been trying to put the team back together. Vegas, uh, they, they got their new coach uh, at the helm, and they've been putting a little win streak together. I don't know what they did last week, but um, this week they're at home in Vegas, and they're facing Minnesota. Who you ride with in that one? Uh... Right now, I just I don't think that the, the, the Raiders have figured it out yet. And Minnesota, they're one of those teams that, if you look back over their, their, uh, their seasons, the last three seasons, you always look up and Minnesota is winning these games that they shouldn't be winning. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's going to be one of those. I think they're going to go in uh, Vegas and, and, and sneak out with an with a, with a electrifying win. Yeah. Um, New Orleans and Carolina. New Orleans is really, really fighting for the, the top of that division against Atlanta. And uh, they're playing Carolina this week. I'm going to ride with New Orleans easily, especially since they're going to be in the Dome. Well, who are they playing? Carolina. Next. <laughs> uh, Chicago and Detroit. Chicago at home. Justin Fields. It's back in uh, the swing of things, but Detroit has been a dangerous team. I'm liking Detroit in this one. 
Yeah, likewise. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm not riding against uh, Detroit right now. Uh, they're, they're riding a, a wave, and they're at the crescendo of that wave, and, and I just, I, I like what they're doing in Detroit. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the, the, the best games probably this week that's really going to be important for the AFC South is Tampa and Atlanta. Atlanta is number one in the division right now, but if you watch Tampa, they have really been on fire. Unfortunately, they have lost, I believe, like the last two or three games. They've been very, very close. But I believe this mediocre Atlanta team is a team that Tampa can really uh, overcome. Okay. But explain something to me. You said that this game is very influential in what's going on in the AFC South. I mean, NFC South. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. Because <laughs> I was like, you know, it doesn't matter. The Texans can't get into that division spot in the playoffs. Yeah, NFC South. My bad, people. Last matchup I want to talk about is Green Bay and New York. Um, I'm going to skip that Tennessee-Miami game. I think Miami going to ride all over uh, Tennessee. But Green Bay and New York might actually be pretty interesting to some extent. But I really like what Jordan Love did against Kansas City, so I'm going to ride with Green Bay now. Um, I think I was the one last week that said, you know, don't underestimate Green Bay. And I think it was Kansas City that went into Green Bay and thought that they were just going to get something just gift-wrapped and handed to them and came out. <laughs> on the short end of the stick. You right about so, that. Uh, I'm going to keep riding with Green Bay. I like what I saw out of their running, uh, running attack, and I think that's the difference in this game between them and New York. Uh, Saquon Barkley has been a no-show all season, and what Green Bay is doing, they finally found a way to have their running game complement their passing game. And Jordan Love is really starting to come into his own, so I'm riding with Green Bay. I, I agree, I agree. All right, um... So, turning the page to college football, we really just want to talk about uh, the four teams that got in the tournament and the two teams that got left outside the tournament. And boy, uh, I can't wait until they open up the tournament field to field more teams because leaving Georgia and Florida State out of the four-team playoff is just bad, bad, bad to me for college football. <clears throat> Especially when Florida State was undefeated and they won every game this season, and yet they still got hosed at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> listen, uh, the statement that you just made, and you named two teams, and you said they got left out of the four-team college playoff. Uh, I'm, 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 I just think that this the number of teams that get allowed to compete in this playoff needs to be expanded. That's the only true way because I, I can see this situation that we have right here this year mm. being a reoccurring theme going into every succeeding uh, college football season. Yeah. And, and it's historically been a problem. That's the reason why they actually put the playoffs in mm. uh, was because some teams that they felt like was qualified to compete for the championship, wasn't given the opportunity. Right. But I just think four teams is not enough. But um, you giving your case on why Florida State should be in the top four. Why should Georgia be there? Um, I don't think that Georgia necessarily should be there, but I think Georgia is the reason that it really needed to expand, you know, years ago. Uh, thank God that it is expanding next season. Um, I think it's expanded to like eight teams or something. 
But even then, you still got a question, is that really enough team still at this point, especially with all the realignments and things that's going on? But that's a whole nother episode, you know, to really talk about that. But Georgia, man, they was undefeated all year long. You know, they beat everybody until the championship game, and they, they got to Alabama, and they lost this one. Uh, and then, boom, they're left out of the tournament. You know, everything that they have been fighting for all year round. And honestly, it's almost like this Georgia-Florida State game is kind of like a national championship for them because you had a team that was undefeated. You had a team that was undefeated all year long until they coughed up one loss, you know? So it really sucks to beat both of them, honestly. I be quiet, but when he leave, I be talking again. Yeah, it really does. Uh, but, you know, before we, we go any further, I just kind of like to give to some of our listeners who, who and, and hopefully everybody that's listening is well aware of the college football playoffs. But I just want to give y'all just a little bit of a, of a backdrop or a background of what it's all about um, and how it comes about. So basically, it's a college playoff series that, that, that determines the college football champion of that year. Mm -hmm. But um, a lot of people may not know that there is actually a committee who decides which four teams go in. Now, how teams are automatically put in is if they win their conference championship. That kind of gets you a, a, a straight buy-in. But there's mm -hmm. a 13-member committee that actually um, decides on these rankings, uh, the AP rankings that you hear throughout the year, and also decide which four teams go into this uh, college playoff. But um, in looking at the names of the members of the committee that uh, that serve to, to do this year's selection, uh, one key name stood out to me on that list, and it was Ward Manuel, who is actually the Michigan athletic director. So, I mean, if you got your own director <laughs> on the committee, I mean, none of the other schools that's been selected into this process actually have a, a, a member from their, their, their school program on the committee. And to me, when they're talking about changing this, I kind of think they also need to change the members of the committee and how, you know, who is it that's uh, uh, allowed to serve as a member of the committee? Because if you tell me that this guy isn't biased in any way at all, I just, I find that hard to believe. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to see, but what I don't want to see is kind of turn back over to the hands where they, at one while, I think they were buying heavily on the, the, the votes from members of the media. I do not want to see that again, you know. I don't know what they're going what to, what it's going to take for them to fix it, but share your thoughts, Mike. You know, how do you feel about that selection committee? I, I think the selection committee, like you said, them having a, a Michigan AD on there, that's rigged all the way to ben, begin with. But also, one of the things that I realized that they say, one of the stipulations is that they're supposed to put the best four teams into the conference. Now, you can't tell me that Florida State is not one of the best four teams if they're in a Power Five conference coming out of ACC and they went undefeated. Uh, but also, they say that um, they have to feel that that one specific team that they put in or take out has the ability to play up to its full potential. And they felt that since Florida State lost its quarterback, they felt that they couldn't play to their full potential. But when I looked at Florida State, you know, those last two games, and remember I had expected Louisville to beat Florida State, but they their defense is so good 
uh, I don't think none of these teams would have truly been a problem for them. So just to see them go against Alabama, Texas, Michigan, or Washington with that defense would have been amazing to me. But they say it's not good for TV because what the committee wants to do is put people on TV that's going to be electric on the offensive side of the ball and, uh, you know, basically have players that can open up our eyes and, and really just make us look at a, a, a shootout going back and forth in college football versus having a stalemate from a solid defensive team. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think uh, the game uh, last year with TCU, it, it just kind of had them kind of scared to pick another team like TCU, such as Florida State, uh, to go into the to the to the playoffs because they didn't want that type of thing. Because mm-hmm. every year they're looking for that game that's going to rival the Texas Longhorns versus USC, where you see all year long on ESPN Classic that this was the most uh, uh, favorite college football championship ever, the greatest one ever. They're looking for the next greatest one ever every mm-hmm. year, and everybody knows in sports that not every game is going to be. Uh, Forever classic, such as that. I mean, uh, hats off to Vince Young and Matt Leinart and Reggie Bush for all they brought to that championship game. Mm-hmm. But that's the reason why records are made and sometimes records stand for 10, 15, 20 years because what you're watching is not everyday normal stuff. This is once in a lifetime or once every 10, 20 years occurrence. And the committee wants that every year now. Like, you can't cookie-cut that. You can't mass-produce that. It's just organic. And I think that takes away from school programs such as Florida State that have gone out there in spite of all their obstacles and still position themselves to be undefeated at this time of the season and still be looking on the outside looking in. I just think that's unfair. All because they want to try to force that type of a championship game. And yeah. here's the crazy part. Out of the four teams that they pick, when it actually comes down to the championship game, it could actually be a dud. It could actually be a game that's played with these teams right here where people are falling asleep with popcorn all over their lap because you, you're not guaranteed <laughs> to get this electrifying game that they think that they want, you know? So. Right. Why not give the teams with the best records who have proved that time and time again throughout the course of the season that they 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 are resilient and they find ways to win. Sometimes that is more electrifying than games of past. Yeah. And you know what? You, you talk about mass producing. I think they're really trying to manufacture uh, that, that Alabama-Texas rematch because you have Alabama – which is number four taking on number one, Michigan, and number three, Texas taking on number two, Washington. Um, Don't know who's really going to win the game, but I'll be honest, I think Texas has too much size for Washington. I believe Alabama has too much size for Michigan. Although I think all the teams are good, that SEC uh, style and and size that they bring uh, to those those Midwestern teams – is, is never going to be stopped by a team like Michigan, even though Michigan is a damn good team, you know, from quarterback to kicker. Uh, but I think Alabama is going to win that game all the way. And then you got UT, um, who's really just been playing some good football, especially in the last 
what, two or three games, you know. And um, they're taking on a Washington team with a good quarterback, um, some good size Samoans, to be totally honest. But them corn-fed uh, white boys, black boys for UT, I, do, I just think they're going to be too much for Washington. You're going to eat your cornbread. And, and you're going to get that mass-produced game that everybody's really licking their chops at, you know, that's in at the top of, of that committee uh, that want to see Alabama and Texas rematch for one good last time. Um, before they both join each other in the SEC. And also, I just think it's a, it's about the SEC, too. You know, them trying to mass produce and uh, build that up for money and, and other things going forward. Mm. You may have a point there. I mean, you know, uh, <clears throat> shadier things have happened. But, you know, out of these, these two games in the college playoffs, uh, one thing just kind of sticks out to me. Uh, when Alabama faces Michigan, Michigan is the is the home team. Mm -hmm. And when Texas faces Washington, Washington is the home team. Right. But the Alabama Michigan game is actually played in California. In the and the Park. Texas and Washington game is actually going to be played in New Orleans. Please. So with that being said, does the home team really have an advantage in either one of these games? Uh, I would definitely say no, especially Washington. They they definitely don't have an advantage because Texas is just right there. I mean, they take no favors to so, the so. When we look at that, that's probably going to be a burnt orange game, a burnt orange dome for, for the most part. You know, now that Alabama-Michigan game, uh, both of them teams is kind of even. So it's, it's, it's more or less about who's going to get there first. But that, that UT game, man, I, I think they really set that up for uh, UT to win that game, for sure. Well, so we you already sent your picks in. You said Alabama uh, beats Michigan and uh, Texas beats Washington. But I'm going to tell you like this. When the announcement came out, mm -hmm. they had a clip up on, uh, on, on uh, social media of some area at Michigan where there was a mass amount of Michigan fans, it was a mass, let me just call it correctly, a mass amount of Wolverines watching the results and, and trying to anticipate how everything was going to play out. And when the announcement came out <laughs> that they were in and that they were going to play Alabama uh, in the first round, dude, that room, it was like somebody let all the air out of that room. Like It was like they didn't believe in their team. To come away with this victory, yeah. I was I was so amazed by this. Like I literally watched it like two or three different times. Yeah, people's body language in that room was unmistakable. You know, I, I think a lot of that comes from. I mean, if my mind serves me right, I believe that Michigan played Alabama or, or Georgia or somebody like that before in the SEC uh, in in a college football playoff, and it did not go well. You know, and and that's why I say. Michigan, you know, they have the size, they have the talent, but it's just something about that Alabama team, man. When, when they face them boys from down south, they just not ready. And they know, their coaches know, everybody knows you're going to have your hands full with a Nick Saban coach team anyways. I mean, it, I mean, it's just like he's the Bill Belichick on the college level. So, you know, uh, I, I will say that Michigan has their hands full, but I do want to say this. If Michigan comes out and does not let the fact of who they are playing intimidate them, they actually have a chance to compete and win that game. Mm -hmm. But, you know, only time will tell which, which, which Michigan team shows up. Yeah, 
uh, I, I can't wait to see, uh, you know, what happens. I think it's going to be very competitive, at least for the first quarter. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but let's turn the page, man. You know, uh, NCAA, they have opened up with a new rule that they're trying to uh, propose, and it's going to let schools uh, and, and athletes come together and, and basically have NIL deals together. Basically, it's, it's like college is turning into professional. You know, I thought college was supposed to be for amateurs that's trying to become professional. But now schools are being allowed or possibly being allowed to set up NIL deals and play college athletes. But not only that, they're trying to make a big divide between uh, FBS divisions now. You know, they're trying to create two divisions. A division for the highest resource schools that have money to pay their athletes and then a division for the schools that don't want to be included or know they can't afford to pay all their athletes. And this is not only just for football, this is for basketball, this is for women's sports and all, you know. And then they're talking about, man, about $30,000 per athlete at least. Like, bro, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Like, do you know what kind of competition is really about to come out of high school now? You know, to get into that kind of division of football. And that division that I'm talking about is uh, the Big Ten, the SEC, the Big 12, um, the ACC. You know, those are the, are the top divisions with the highest resource schools with the most money. And those are the things that we'll have to be talking about now. Not, you know, not even including transferring uh players left and right all the time. Now we're talking about NIL deals and how much a school can offer each athlete, let alone. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, there's two sides of the fence to this. I, and it's a very debatable topic. Like you said, I thought it was the amateurs. Why are these people getting paid? I, I, I can, the immediate answer that comes to mind when that question is posed is, look, yeah, these guys go out to form well, they increase their draft potential, and they make a big payday when they go to the pros. Mm -hmm. But what's on the flip side of that? Everybody knows with the game of football, at least, uh, uh, how rough and rugged that sport is. You got some great athletes that their career got <laughs> derailed on the collegiate level. They never, they never lived to see a day in the NFL because they got hurt playing this game that they love. Mm -hmm. So, I mean... The goal for those players is to be able to have generational wealth and take care of their families through this sport. Well, if this sport is the reason why they can no longer continue to earn a living, why not give them uh, some type of compensation? Because we all know how much money the, the, the colleges and, and, and the, uh, NCAA makes a year off of these athletes, and it's ridiculous. Right, right. You know, so I can see that as uh, being part of the argument. But then... On the other side of the fence, how do we make it fair for certain schools when we already know the big fish are going to come in and, and suck up all the players because they're paying them more? Mm -hmm. But I say there's only so many spots per team. They can't pay every great player. And there's so many great players from around the country that you can't pay them all at one school. So, you know, there are going to be enough players to go around because now this is going to motivate guys that was – you know, I don't know how it was when you were in school, but for me, when I was in school, some of the best players from my 
from our area was not on our high school football team. They were not on our high school basketball team. You know why? Because they were in their own little division called the Cool Kids Club, and they skipped classes and smoked joints and drank alcohol and never even touched the court. But if you go out and uh, and play them on the playground after after hours or after school hours, they were dunking on the dudes that was on the um, on the, on the school team. Some of the best players never touched the court or the field. Mm-hmm. But I think now that there's going to be financial gain in their in their sights earlier on versus to making it all the way to the pros, you're going to start seeing a lot more of those players coming to the fold too. They'll get their they'll get their mind right and start making better decisions and say, "Hey, I'm gonna go out here and actually play." Yeah. And so some of these other schools could benefit from that. But um, I was looking at it, and it, they're talking about uh, it's it's a it's a three name or word process. They're talking about playing this because like what is it name, image, and likeness or something like yeah. that. Yeah, name, image, and likeness. That that the, that's the kind of deals <laughs> that they're gonna give these kids. Like, how does that work? I think, well, you know, uh, name, image, and likeness has been a, a big factor in the past, especially when it comes to, like, video games and stuff. Those uh, those athletes have always been at the top. When you talk about Reggie Bush, Johnny Manziel, uh, they were always using their, their name, image, and likeness to make so much money off of those kind of players. But those players never benefited, and they'll get punished when they'll make the little pennies that they could get, you know, on the side. But... Um, I think the good thing about this NIL thing is that it now basically frees up the ability for players to go make money off themselves. Uh, the things that all the schools were getting punished for and suspended for years, you know, for uh, paying these players under the table, now it's legal. It's actually just legal for me to go ahead and buy my mama, buy, well, buy his mama a car. Uh, oh, you want to go get your mama a, a new house? How many rooms it need? Yeah, here go the money. You go ahead and do it, you know. And those are the kind of things that that's really going to allow players to decide what school they want to go to again, you know. But with ease, it's not thrown under the rug or anything like that. We're not getting punished for it uh, anymore. But also another thing that I also realized in this that they mentioned <clears throat> is it's going to make gender equality throughout sports, not only for men and women, you know. I mean, not, not only is men benefiting, but women are benefiting as well. And, you know, a lot of times, especially for women, when they get to the pros and things like that, they're they're highly underpaid. So at least on the college level, they're getting something of equal or better, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I really like that for it. But man, the name, image, and likeness is the biggest thing that's gonna come out of this. Um, the players are really gonna be able to benefit from it because like every year, we, we got a college player that we see on TV all the time that people just love and they sell their jerseys. They attach them to all kind of commercials and things. Rather, it's that Heisman commercial, whatever the case may be. You know, now they can really benefit and they can feed their family because there's a lot of these players, man, out here that has, that already have kids and stuff like that. They are already struggling coming out of high school. So now they can immediately help out at home, and uh, that will make a difference right away for them. But at the same time, I just feel like since college is supposed to be an amateur sport, I feel like it's going to kind of hurt the players in some ways because they're going to be so focused on the money part of things 
and not really worried about their education anymore and then moving up to the pros where they know they're still going to make their money and me as a person i just feel like the money's going to come either way you know and i feel like college now is too focused on uh allowing the players to magnify the money versus their education yeah and you know just to kind of come in on that last part that you just said i'm gonna lower my tone i'm gonna kind of get in here and i'm gonna kind of whisper this because I don't want the word to get out. But to be honest with you, I look back over college sports for the last at least 10 or 15, 20, maybe even more than that. And people, can you hear me? Are you listening? Most of the top athletes in the sports, with the exception of maybe an Andrew Luck, they didn't care about an education. Okay, <laughs> so that part of it has always been in existence. It's not just going to come into existence because of this new proposed uh, change that uh, Mr. Charlie Baker has put on the table, who is uh, <laughs> the NCAA president. But what I do, what I'm interested, the part that I am really interested in seeing is how this bidding war now takes place. Now that the the the, the athletes can now strike direct deals with those colleges. For their, for their name, image, and likeness. Mm -hmm. And then there's a second part of the proposal for the other schools where the, the colleges themselves will actually be setting millions of dollars to the side that will go into this this huge trust fund mm -hmm. so to, uh, to disperse amongst the athletes. Like, I'd like to see the breakdown of that, but... That's still a little time away. He just put the proposal out there. It's up for the schools to take it and decide on if they're going to roll with it or not. But one of the, the new rules that he did specifically mention was uh, it would create a new subdivision of Division One schools that would be allowed to create its own set of rules for recruiting, transfers, roster size, and a wide range of other policies. See, there's that gray area right mm -hmm. there that I'm a little scared of. So if you got a subdivision of division one schools, like how does that work? Like I need a more breakdown than just a high level overview in order for me to say yay or nay to this. But I guess more details are to come. That's a pay grade bigger than mine at this point. So I'm gonna just leave that like out there like that. But those are the facts, people. Uh, Shoot us your thoughts. Let us know what you think about this new proposed uh, payout program for the college athletes. One, do the college athletes need to be making this money? And two, if they do, how do we keep it fair? Yeah. And also, give us your thoughts on how it may affect the transfer portal because that is really going to play a key factor into what this uh, new NIL deal is all about as well. Uh, people. I know this episode was supposed to be focused primarily on uh, the Texans, the NFL, the, the college and, and stuff like that. But I just want, I got one other thing I can't help but mention because uh, today is Thursday and uh, we're coming up on this big event uh, this weekend and uh, I don't know if we'll be able to get another episode out before then. But there's been a huge buzz going around in the boxing world pertaining to this Devin Haney versus Prograce fight. And I just want to throw to my co-host just really, really quick before we skate out of here. Mm -hmm. uh, share your thoughts on that fight. 
You know what? I haven't really looked at the uh, the opponent uh, against Devin Haney, but looking at Devin Haney, I, I've seen him box. And um, his last fight, man, I think it was against, what, Lomachenko or somebody like that? Lomachenko. Uh, it was silly. You know, yeah, it, it was silly. Um, but... <laughs> But I, I'll tell you this. I like I like what Devin Haney brings to the boxing world versus what I've seen out of Shakira Stevenson most recently. I do see Devin Haney somehow finding a way to uh, prevail in this fight just based off, you know, I don't even know who the hell that dude is, to be honest. Wow. But I know Devin Haney is a pretty solid boxer. He's good with his defense, but he also brings a lot of power in his hands. And, uh... That right there, me knowing that he can go the distance in a fight and take some hits from uh, looking at the Lomachenko fight. You know, Lomachenko was a pretty damn good boxer himself. And David Haney took him on. And, and that's the one thing I can give Haney. He, he really hasn't ducked anybody uh, as far as that I know. So I like his chances against this uh, this boxer. What do you say his name is again? Regis Progress. Yeah, Regis Progress is going down. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I got to say about that. Okay, so just so you know, uh, Regis Prograde is a 34-year-old WBC super lightweight champion. Uh -huh. Now, how we don't know what this guy is, that, 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 just, that just has me just blown away. But the, the thing, the one key thing that I wanted to uh, say about this, and I really want people to uh, kind of uh, chime in on this, like I said, Regis Prograde is... 34 years old. Mm -hmm. Devin Haney is 24 years old. And that's my one problem that I personally have with the sport of boxing. Like, to me, a 24-year-old fighting a 34-year-old, the advantage should kind of be to the 34-year-old. Should be. Because of age and life experiences. Not necessarily just boxing experiences, but life experiences. And I'm just a little leery as a parent, which is, and the reason why I say that is because if you know Devin Haney, you know, his father is a huge part of his career, his training, his everything. As a parent, I would be a little leery about putting my 24-year-old son in the ring with a 34-year-old grown man who is a, a WBC champion. And, and and yes, at 24, Devin Haney is a grown man as well. He's an adult at 24. I was about to say, he, he passed 21, right? Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, you know, that, that, that to me, it's still, uh, I don't know. But given, let me just say this, Devin Haney for 24 years old, he does have a unique uh, skill set when it comes to boxing. And uh, so far, he's been able to hold his own. But I do know that this fight is a huge challenge for him, mm -hmm. a step up. Because he's coming up in weight to make this fight. And uh, he's abandoned his belts where he's been, uh, he was the undisputed champion in, in, in another weight class. And he's stepping up to go and, and take this fight against Regis Prograce, which is why I, I felt like it was necessary for us to talk about this on this episode because it's coming up into the weekend. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people that feel like Devin Haney is, is going to win the fight. But at the same time, I think people don't spend enough time looking at those little small X factors that say, hmm, if he loses, it wouldn't come as such a, sh a shock to me. 
because of what all he is is trying to overcome just to take this fight. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's actually interesting. So did you did you pick one of the fighters yet? I have not made a pick yet. Now, it's honestly uh, interesting that Prograde has actually started boxing in Houston. Mm-hmm. So I think he that, lives in Houston currently. So I think that's that's interesting right there. But um, I see two things that stick out to me after you know looking up Prograde's and uh, Devin Haney's fight. And the one thing that I do see is that Prograde's has an eighty-two point eight percent knockout rate against his opponents. Yeah, he's he's had like twenty nine fights or something like that, and he's knocked out twenty four of them. And Devin Haney is only yielding a fifty percent KO rate. So, I mean, if this fight is is going to be won by Devin Haney, I think it's going to go the distance, and it's going to be something that's going to be determined by the judges. I don't see no knockout in this fight if Devin Haney's winning. Mm-hmm. But if Pro Graves win, uh, I think I think Haney's going down by TKO or something of a sort. But like I said, I, me, myself, I, I like Devin Haney in this fight. Um, younger guy, he, he's not as mastered probably, you know, uh, as far as uh, being a boxer over the years. Um, you look at Regis Prograis, like you said, he's more uh, fine and, 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 and chiseled over time, you know, as, as a boxer. And he, he'll know a couple in and outs uh, better than Devin Haney, mm-hmm. but uh, hey man, it, it's gonna be a good fight. I have to make sure that I keep my TV on for this one. Yeah, and that's why that's why I actually wanted to mention this fight because uh, to be honest with you, um, the vibe I get from this fight, like the last fight Haney had against Lomachenko, the build up was just wasn't there for me, and I watched the fight and it was yeah whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last big fight before that. Um, or after that, Shakur Stevenson, and whatever. But if you've watched any of the press conferences with these fights, right? This this fight right here surrounding this, it isn't. It doesn't feel like it's forced. Like like they've been trying to shovel these fights down our throats, where the the, the boxers get up there and they do this this little old fake. Uh, yeah, I'm mad at you. Yeah, I'm mad at you. I'm gonna do this to you. Yeah. I'm gonna do this to you. Type thing. It's not scripted. This stuff is organic between these two people. And uh, it, it, it even spills down into the, 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 the trainers. And uh, like I said, Devin Haney, his father is his trainer and the trainer for Prograce. They've gotten into it. All this stuff is, is noted on YouTube. And they've not only done it at the press conferences, but their videos of them out and about in other places. And these people are really getting at it. And both sides are proclaiming a knockout in this fight. And they're both asking each other the same thing. Is your, boy, is your boy gonna get in the ring and run or is your boy gonna get in there and fight? Because if you come in there and fight, I'm gonna knock him out. And then the other side is actually saying that back to the first side. Yeah. So to me, this is gonna be must watch TV. So tune in, make sure you don't miss it. And hopefully we'll be able to put up an episode uh, shortly there after that. And then we can just kind of uh, see where, I, where the dust settles on this thing. But just so I can get out of here and y'all say, oh, he weasel out without giving a pick. I'm actually rolling with the old school in this <laughs> one. I'm rolling with Prograce, people. All right, all right, I like it. Well, we're going to see what the two Americans do since, you know, they got to exchange blows. This fight going to be happening in San Francisco or the city of the Bay. So uh, things should be interesting. 
Um, I'm gonna ride with Haney in the distance, and, and we're gonna see what's gonna happen. But uh, thank you, people, for listening to another episode of the Houston Sports Connoisseurs. Uh, don't forget to like, listen, and learn how to become a connoisseur, just like your boy D. Raw and my boy Charles here. Uh, what? I finally became a connoisseur. Get out of here. Do I get a sickle? <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't forget to share, people. Don't forget to share. We need to share all the time. Oh, and we love coffee. Don't forget to donate a coffee or two. You know, we can always use that, and that can really go far. You never know. When you donate a coffee, you might win something. And also, people. Just by donating some coffee, I just got to put this out here as well. Uh, every every cup of coffee that you donate is one less fly flying around one of those little babies in Africa. Thank you so much. Feel that. Can you feel what's about to happen on this field, man? Turn your click up, dog. Turn them up. Turn your bitch up, dog. Turn around.